Welcome back to System and Disturbia, the podcast where we have special guests sometimes. This is Brent. I'm Jonathan. And I'm Peyton. And with us we have... Miko. Thanks for having me. Great. And we can refer you as Miko? Yeah, Miko's fine. It's technically okay. Miko-I, but no one can pronounce that. Yeah. Yeah, I was... This whole time I've been pronouncing it Mikolaj. I know that's not right, but... <laughs> yeah, don't worry. I got used to that one, too. Yeah, yeah. Fair enough. So he'll be joining us tonight, or I guess this evening for us, to talk about chaos engineering, which is something I've actually been wanting to talk about on the show for a good while now, but I haven't really had any chance to dive into it and kind of broach that topic. But now we're able to, so so that's awesome. Mm-hmm. What's been going on in everyone's lives? Well, there's a pandemic, so I've just been in the in the house. <laughs> right? Still? There's still a pandemic? Yeah. I started working on a workbench in my garage using my leftover wood. It's going along pretty well. Wow. Yeah. yeah, yeah absolutely. And I did, for the listeners, I did add pictures of Peyton's playhouse that he built. So they're in the previous episodes. Show notes. You can see links to them there. If you'd like to see more, then you can let me know. Yeah. Buy more. I threw my back out again yesterday. Oh, no. Yeah, this is like the third time this year. Because you're carrying the whole the whole team there. <laughs> I mean, maybe, and but... And here, too. More to the point, <laughs> this time it was because I was carrying, like, a huge roll of carpet into the house. Oh, God. Because we're, we're getting it. You know, I have to carpet the porch for the fiancé's ferrets. This and is I, a I, ridiculous thing. Uh, well, they can't. They don't walk so well on hardwood. So I have to, you know, put carpeting down. But I underestimated how much, like, 30 by 12 of carpet, and pretty lush carpet at that, weighs. So that was not a fun time yesterday. But it's all good now, and I'm not the one that has to install it, so I'm happy with that. So <laughs> I'm sitting here in, my, in the basement in my office working, and I get a text from my wife, and it's images, and it's a lot of images. This ties directly into your, your carpet thing. We have a rug, because we have hardwood floors. And we were yep. rugged, and my wife happened to go lay down with our one and a half year old, and the three year old and five year old were kind of left to their own devices. They were watching TV and had iPads, so they shouldn't have been entertained. Or they decided that they were going to get jelly, paprika, and some sort of oh, no. iron pills or something like that. And I know where this is They going. made a unholy mess on the rug. Uh, it was <laughs> it was disgusting. And also on one of the couch cushions. So, and actually, you can hear my three-year-old in the background. He's down here. He should not be. Anyway, <laughs> we're gonna deal with that later, whatever. So yeah, so right. I had to carry that rug out. I had to go to Costco and buy a new one. So, oh, it, like it was, it was beyond repair. That, oh, oh like, yeah, not even no, no, steam no, no, no. It was not even worth the time because we were already gonna oh. replace it anyway because we're potty oh, training. And yeah. he's yeah. peed on it and pooped on it. And Wonderful. This was like the final straw. Like, this was it. We were done. Wonderful. Miko, is this what you expected yeah. when, you, when you joined in for this? <laughs> yeah, pretty much, yeah. Okay, okay, good. So, before we go any further, guys, what are you drinking? Water. To accommodate our guest, we are recording at a very strange time, so I am technically still working. Mm-hmm. Same. This is paid. Uh, yeah, so I am drinking water. water. I'm sad about it because I like to get real drunk for the guests because that's when we have the best time. Sure, <laughs> woo, woo, woo for us, Jason. Yeah. No, I'm can not you... gonna woo. <laughs> can you muster up some high energy? 
But yes, I promise I'll pour one out when I listen to the episode anyway. <laughs> Fair enough. I think that's reasonable. Hayden, and you are, are you drinking anything? Because you're, you're on the clock Water too. Water and Diet Dr. Technically. Okay. Miko, are you drinking anything? Oh, that's kind of awkward. Now I feel like an alcoholic. I'm having some Merlot, so nothing too bad either. Nothing wrong with Merlot? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I would, I'd trade with you if I could. <laughs> right. I would definitely drink I, some Merlot too. If it makes Turn my water better, into wine. Yeah, usually I'm the one that drinks water. But tonight, or I guess this evening, because it's afternoon, because it's it's four sixteen local. I am drinking Moosehead Lager. <laughs> Is it from Is it Maine? Is it good? No, it's Canadian. Oh, it's all right. I mean, it's lager. You know, I I got it for free thanks to my future brother-in-laws. How many brother-in-laws so, are you gonna have? Two, I think. I've met two. So wait, is it is Moosehead Lager like cheap beer or is it like good beer? I don't know. I didn't. I didn't buy it. Oh, okay, I, I got it. And it's Canadian, so you can never tell with Canadian because like I thought Canadian even beer, cheap all Canadian, Canadian beer is supposed to be good. Yeah, like even cheap Canadian beer tastes like you know, like it's it's not bad. But yeah, so I don't know. It's 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 all right. Lager is usually not my preferred drink, but it's. You know, I mean, it's beer. I'll drink it. <laughs> so, it needs to be drinking, drunk, 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 drink. It needs to be consumed. Drink, drink, drunk. <laughs> right, right. It needs to be consumed. So I am consuming it. Fair enough. Hey, Peyton. Yeah. Do you have a tip for us? I have a meaty, turgid tip. Oh, okay. All right. That's actually got, got a little bit of a musk to it. You know. It's not about your work. Bench, no, 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 no. Okay. So I was uh, in the process of working on some rel servers the other day, and mm-hmm. I came across a library that refused to be updated. And so mm-hmm. I looked at it, I was like, what the hell is this? And I said, what the hell is Boost? And why is it not being updated on my system? What the hell? And by mm-hmm. my system, I mean the server I was upgrading. So Boost is a compilation of libraries Yes. Mm, yeah. And is for also C++. for C++. Thank you for for spoiling that, Jathan. Thank you. <laughs> Jesus Christ. Jathan. Spoiler alert. Come on. So it's a compilation of C++ libraries. Thank you, Jathan. Mm-hmm. And is also a distribution. That's a little weird, but whatever. Uh, but basically, right. the, the gist here is to kind of give you a all the libraries for C++ that you would possibly need. And I think it even actually ties into like Python and other things. And I was just like, what the hell is this? And so that's that's what I'm talking That's about. pretty integral to if you're compiling any software at all. Yeah. Because yeah, a yeah, lot yeah. of it out there uses it. Yeah. yeah. It, well, it depends th- on it. I this say. is the first time I had seen it. I was like, what the hell? But yes. And when that breaks, you're right. in the shithole. And you don't want to yeah. pick, you don't want to fuck with that too bad. So my tip is about Boost. Take a look at it. It's pretty neat. I haven't got to play with it, but I did, you know, run into that. And so. This is about things that I run across and I'm concerned about or confused about. So there you go. So that was my tip. I feel like I feel like we should actively dissuade developers from relying on boost. Oh yes. Oh oh, absolutely. Absolutely. (laughs) Where it's where possible it's like standard live because (laughs) So here's the thing is lots of scientific software. So Miko, you I don't know how much you listen to the show or read up on us or anything like that before you came to hang out, but I work primarily in academia in high-performance computing. So the number of times that I've had to compile Boost with some special options just to install one package God. is unreal. And it's a beat. It's a beefy one. Oh, yeah. It takes forever. 
Yeah. Oh. Yeah, there's a lot of lot of compilation. It was like reliving my damn Gentoo days. It was terrible. <laughs> Like a uh, like compiling GLibc. Oh, that was a pain. Oh God, that takes forever. Yeah. What the hell, man. Well, yeah. So if you are a developer, look into using Boost, but you know, maybe stick to Senderlib because your deployment engineers will thank you. But please don't use it if you cannot avoid it. <laughs> Dick. Okay. <laughs> so jumping right in. We're just gonna cannonball, cannonball right into that pool, right? Yeah. Right. Yeah. I'm just gonna jump right in. Not gonna get, just get her toes wet because then it's that's the wrong way to do it. You got to jump yeah, all you gotta, in at once. You got to just get, you got to go full Monty and just jump right in the water because but otherwise not in a community pool because COVID. Well, although it, you know with all the chlorine, it's probably all right. I don't really care. Fuck it, I'm doing it. <laughs> I'm gonna do it negative too. Like, and it's like I'm just gonna get infected. I don't care. Yeah. So chaos engineering. Chaos. It's a really cool concept. I first read about it. I want to say like three or four years ago, maybe something around there. Mm-hmm. The and correct me if I'm wrong, Miko, because you're obviously much more involved in this than I am. But the general philosophy is to purposefully break your infrastructure to test how resilient it is in the case of an unexpected breakage, right? Yeah, so that's basically the big idea to kind of experiment mm-hmm. on your system, be it small or big, uh, you know, complex or distributed or local. To kind of see that, you know, it behaves the way you think it behaves when you introduce some kind of failure. And that's really the, okay. that's really it, yeah. Cool. So do you have a business card that just says Chaos Engineer? Because that sounds like it'd be a cool one to, <laughs> to hand be, out to people. That would be awesome. What do you do? <laughs> yeah. I'm a Chaos Engineer. <laughs> yes, I, I am the bringer of chaos. Yes, I have a fun story about that, actually. So now, to answer your question, I don't. But I've met a lot of people who actually do have cars like that. That's cool. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I think people started calling themselves, you know, chaos engineers, like you said, maybe three, four years ago. And mm-hmm. I think that, uh, I mean, at least the, the version of the story that I know and that I believe to be true is that it was made up by Casey Rosenthal. He's, he used to work at Netflix uh, because mm-hmm. they kind of needed to work around the policy to uh, get people, uh, senior people uh, to hire. And they needed people to come kind of apply as chaos engineers. So they kind of made up this uh, this title and uh, it worked, you know. And after a few years, people started calling themselves uh, chaos engineers. So it's very cool. Yeah, it's, it's kind of weird. It's, it's a fun discipline because it's kind of between, you know, SRE, between your uh, anti-fragility, between mm. a lot of different stacks. And you get to play with a lot of things and break them little dfir in there too probably mm-hmm. yeah so, when i sorry, go ahead when i first read about it i remember and they've come a long way since then they've automated a lot of this with software and, and things like that but i remember first reading how they would just randomly walk into a data or not they would walk into a data center just randomly start yanking jacks the netflix chaos engineers yeah and that is <laughs> that was just so cool to me because nothing displays chaos like that if you can survive that you have a pretty good Pretty good score, I think. <laughs> but they've come along. Actually, before we go any further, now you are writing a book. Is the book written in its entirety, or is it the book is about? Uh, I have three chapters left. I just oh boy, yeah. So I'm kind of like at this point when it almost feels finished, but there's still some way to go. Okay, but yeah, it's a love hate relationship at the time. <laughs> of course, yeah. Of course. Now. It always is. <laughs> yeah. mm-hmm. Brent and I actually both, we didn't edit, we 
gave feedback Review. on a book about OpenStack, yeah, yeah. yeah. And the person who wrote it, extremely competent sysadmin on the OpenStack team and stuff like that. But she very much had the same feelings. Like, writing the book was basically the best and worst thing she's ever done, I think. <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. So the book is called Chaos Engineering, Crash Test Your Applications. It's by Manning Publications. I'll link to it in the show notes, like I always do with this stuff. And it is currently... I believe they have like an advanced release program. It's currently four out of 12 chapters available. Yeah. Yeah. Early access program, I should say. Mm -hmm. So, you know, it definitely, you know, I did, you know, in full disclosure, I was granted a free copy. I've read a little bit of it and it does look pretty well. I really admire your writing style. (laughs) Well, thank you for that. That's the first. It's hard to find. Well, it's hard to find good technical good writing about technical topics that are written in like a human kind of way yeah you usually get the guy who's really technical and can't write for anything or, or the they're writing can... rfcs right you know which are right. just fine you know i read plenty of rfcs but not with someone new to the field you know you can't point him to like <laughs> rfceditor.org and be like have at it you know yeah. no it's, yeah. it's very accessible it's very accessible Oh, thank you for that. And it, it seems like it'd be a good read. I look forward to the full release being available. Yeah, me too. Thanks. Same. So, same, same. <laughs> so yeah. I have a question that's not directly related to the book, but I think it might be a nice segue to the book. Mm-hmm. So, like, okay. what does the day-to-day of a chaos engineer look like? Like, what do you go to work and do mm-hmm. on a daily basis? Because if it were me, I would just think, like, you know, maybe putting salt in the sugar shaker or something or sugar in the salt shaker because <laughs> that's, that's chaos but that's chaos. But i mean like what do you do for eight hours a day as a chaos engineer and that's not like a you know like a i don't think you do anything question it's more of like a genuine question oh, that's a good question i mean well the, the answer is really that i don't really do that eight hours a day my you know mm. my business card doesn't say that i am actually responsible for running a, a kubernetes uh, kind of as a service within the company and that's mm-hmm. kind of taken most of my day and the chaos engineering part of it is basically to kind of try to automate finding problems that we haven't thought about yet and you yeah. know and some of it is basically just taking the things that we think we know and automating them and checking whether they're actually true whether the thing behaves the way that we want and then there's the part of it that's kind of like you know actually random where we try to do things that we haven't tried doing and see what happens there but uh yeah it's it's kind of like a slice sorry to interrupt so it's like fuzzing but on a meta concept yeah there's definitely uh an overlap with that and yeah there's like if you put you know chaos engineering in google you're probably going to see a lot of this part there's going to be a lot of like break things randomly and break things in production and mm-hmm. in practice, that's that has a little bit of you know a place, um, the fuzzing bit, but most of it mm-hmm. is actually just you know trying to confirm that what we think the system will do is actually happening in reality. Mm. So scientific method, more or less. Yeah, that's pretty much it. Yeah. <laughs> cool. Okay. And really, like ultimately, what would be the point of breaking it if you can't measure it against some sort of metric of performability, right? Yeah. So yeah, exactly. That makes sense. And this is you know the. This is kind of what I'm hoping to achieve with the book in a, well, one of the things to, to kind of show that it's really just about very simple science and mm-hmm. it's really not about randomly breaking things for fun. Right. Well, <laughs> damn it, I'd be bad at it then. So <laughs> let, me, let me ask you this. What yeah. got you into breaking things? Was it something you did as a child and you were like, this is really <laughs> cool, I like to do this as a job? Or, like, what got you into that? 
because I was really good at that as a kid, I tell you. <laughs> yeah, I'm pretty sure, you know, if you ask my parents, they would have a story to say, uh, to tell. But uh, what actually happened is that uh, I'm not very good with dates, but, so I'm hoping I'm not making this up. But uh, 2016, I ended up basically running this Kubernetes-based microservice platform. And Kubernetes was like really new. Like the main reason why we went with that is that I kind of stumbled upon this when uh, they had a conference literally down the road uh, from where I Mm -hmm. uh, used to work. And we kind of evaluated that. It looked good. I know how familiar you guys are with Kubernetes. I've never used it. Yeah, only minorly. I've done like, you know, GCP intro to Kubernetes. Oh, gotcha. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so yeah. it's kind of like all the rage right now. It's basically becoming, yep. you know, the API for deploying stuff across the fleet of VMs. And at the time, if you wanted to run it, uh, you could download, you know, the binaries from GitHub. I uh, could read the source code and then you could kind of set it up and hope that it works. Uh, so one of the things that we started doing was kind of, you know, to sleep a little bit better at night, trying to automate some things that we expect to go wrong. It was running on top mm-hmm. of, well, it still actually is running on top of OpenStack and OpenStack VMs would come up and down, uh, you know, they would become unreachable from time to time. And so we started automating that. And at the time I didn't know I was supposed to be calling that chaos engineering, <laughs> but <laughs> yeah, the scripts eventually ended up becoming an open source project called Powerful Seal that we released um, sometime later. And that's where I learned when, you know, when I was preparing that, that it's supposed to be called Chaos Engineering and I started kind of calling it that. <laughs> hmm, that's cool. So, yeah, bottom line is basically to sleep a bit better at night. Right. Yeah. So, for the listener's benefit, just to clarify, Chaos Engineering is not quite stress testing. It's more of like a reliability testing. Stress testing for reliability, I guess, rather than performance. Yeah. Right? I mean, there is... Again, you know, the the line is very fine between these things. Mm. Uh, When you do chaos engineering, you probably want to stress test things a little bit too. So, for example, you know, a typical example is going to be I run this platform, I have tenants, and some tenants uh, might on purpose or not on purpose uh, misbehave and promise they're going to eat up X CPU and X amount of RAM and actually they're eating up more. And to kind of, you know, protect yourself against this kind of thing, there is this aspect of deploying the chaos in which you basically eat up resources. But that's not really to see how well, you know, the system behaves performance-wise. Mm-hmm. It's more about, you know, it continues working with the assumptions right. that you made. Yeah. Right. That makes sense. Now, with these sort of things, is there any sort of... I mean, I'm assuming not because I get the feeling you're out to write it, but there's no common standard or best practice or things that all chaos engineers with all organizations should be focusing on, right? Well, so, yeah. Well, in, yeah. Yeah. So go ahead. I was going to say, I, I'm sorry, I don't, mean to, I don't mean to cut you off, but, but having a format, wouldn't that like take the chaos out of chaos <laughs> engineering necessarily? <laughs> in a way, I guess. Yeah. So. You know, it's really, I mean, the the theory behind is really not that complicated, right? It's mm-hmm. about picking some kind of variable that you can reliably measure that's uh, mm-hmm. actually going to tell you about the kind of quality of the system that you're interested in. Then uh, you need to kind of, as scientifically as possible, measure uh, kind of what we call steady state. And that's probably the most scientific word in the, in all of this. 
to basically see what the baseline for that variable is. And then you test that variable, how it behaves when you introduce some kind of failure or some kind of condition that you expect to see reasonably in that system. And that's the second scientific word in here called hypothesis that we keep saying. Mm -hmm. Basically, if my system experiences X, uh, then my quality or my variable is going to stay within this range or you know, to make it simple, it's going to keep working or it's not going to keep working or some kind of SLO is going to still be, uh, you know, satisfied. And mm. that's really the, the theory part. But there are a couple of books that kind of deal with the theory part of it from O'Reilly. And they kind of describe, you know, what the theory is and uh, how people are applying that. And I kind of wanted with my book to just go uh, kind of the opposite part. There is uh, a chapter on the theory. And then mm -hmm. the rest of the book is basically about actually giving you the tools and the kind of tidbits of information that you might be interested in to implement these experiments of yours. So it kind of cuts from anything from, you know, things like blocking syscalls with S-trays or Secomp or, you know, other Linux technologies through, uh, you know, uh, experimenting with Docker and experiment with JVM. I just finished the chapter on introducing uh, failure into the bytecode of a JVM uh, to, <laughs> to awesome. break things. <laughs> it doesn't need okay. one. <laughs> <laughs> oh, come on. Okay, we're, that's, a, we're, that's a run. We're very from Java. No, we're not, <laughs> we're not at all. <laughs> You know, we understand the necessity of it, but man, nobody likes to flame the <laughs> And But yeah. fair enough. I mean, that's cool. That's that's a really cool idea, though. Thanks. <laughs> well, because usually you don't, you don't see a lot of that specific, essentially cookbooks, right? I mean, you see it for code a lot, but you don't really see it for implementations. Yeah. So it's, it's an interesting idea you got, got going there. Yeah, I mean, you're laughing at the JVM, but it's actually, you know, has a pretty nice instrumentation API that you can go ahead and mm -hmm. use uh, yeah, know, right yeah. a, little, a little bit. And yeah, I mean, you, you work with Java software all the time, whether you like it or not. <laughs> right, exactly, exactly. It's just a fact of life. <laughs> well, that's pretty cool, though, that you're, that, you know, you recognize that there's plenty. Do you have any recognition? I don't know if you're at liberty to, to mention it, but do you have any recommended, you said O'Reilly has a couple of books, do you have any that you found personally pretty helpful in terms of theory? Yeah, so there is, again, Casey um, uh, wrote two books now. One is a bit shorter, the other one just came out. I'm forgetting the title now, but it came out early, early this year. And okay. uh, in terms of like theory, it basically covers everything. And the really nice thing about it is that they kind of gathered uh, real experience from people from different fields. So there's anything from, you know, finance to entertainment there, and they're describing how they went about applying the chaos engineering and, you know, what kind of challenges they were facing and the benefits that mm -hmm. uh, they got. So that kind of helps you, you know, the entire selling the idea to your managers who might not be too keen to break things on purpose, um, you know, um by default you want to do what <laughs> exactly <laughs> <laughs> so i think the one i'd have to ch double check the publication date but i think the one you're talking about is the o'reilly is chaos engineering system resiliency in practice does that sound familiar uh so let me just double check that but yeah it's mm -hmm. uh, i think it came out in like april this year 
Okay. Nice. Okay. Well, we'll we'll find it, and you can you know email me once you are one hundred percent on the title. But sure, we'll put it in the show notes. But that's pretty cool. Now that's I mean this is obviously something that very large deployments can greatly benefit from. Do you see any sort of benefit from the medium to small deployments as well? Yeah. So this is another kind of thing like I mentioned. You know, in my view. Pretty much anything can kind of benefit from this kind of methodology. Mm. For example, like I mentioned, one of the chapters is basically uh, I was trying to kind of find the smallest example of what I can break or prove that doesn't work uh, well mm. on my system. And I basically ended up doing a little uh, web server written in C, very, very bare bones to just have uh, as few syscalls as possible. And then mm-hmm. Uh, there's an experiment in which you literally just block some of them and see what happens, how, you know, your error handling works with that, uh, whether, you know, the assumptions that you have about retries and stuff like that uh, are, are working and whether it breaks in the way that you expect it to break. So, like, my strong belief is that it doesn't really matter that much uh, how big your system is. I just need mm-hmm. to kind of adjust your methodology to, to do the kind of thing. But yeah, obviously, you know, if you have a massive, nice system and your Netflix, uh, that makes for uh, good PR and uh, sounds pretty mm-hmm. exciting. More exciting right. breaking syscalls. <laughs> right. <laughs> right, exactly, for sure. I think I am... So I did find a, I guess, a single website. It's called principlesofchaos.org. I'm not sure if you're familiar with it. Yeah, that's the main manifesto. Okay, yeah, because it's a single page, it looks like. I mean, they have translations, but it's pretty much just a single page. But they do a great job of breaking down the basic philosophy behind it. Mm -hmm. Chaos in practice is one of the section headers. And that kind of sums it all up. You are applying a practical method of chaos, which which sounds totally oxymoronic on the surface. But, (laughs) I mean, the whole point is you're trying to emulate chaos. So, yeah, that... I mean, you know, the, the name is a little bit of a misnomer. Let's be honest here. Mm-hmm. You know, you're talking about chaos, but what you really want is, you know, as controlled amount of failure as possible. I guess, you right. know, chaos sounds cool. So that helped it spread, I'm guessing. It also has this connotation with like the, the chaos theory from Matt, which mm-hmm. it is, well, basically at best vaguely connected to. So, you know, it does give this a little bit of a false impression. It's about the randomness. And then, obviously, you know, one of the things that kind of popularized the idea was the Chaos Monkey that was initially more or less random, mm-hmm. you know, taking VMs up and down uh, in AWS. Um, and so that's kind of like why people have this this idea in their head. But if you go, uh, I'm considering the, the Principles of Chaos website, basically, you know, the canonical definition as uh, as much as we have one. And mm-hmm. yeah, it's about this experimentation and this controlled failure to check that things are what they are, not just mm-hmm. anything they are. So is there like an established sort of method for, you know, like it seems like this is something that, you know, most hobbyists don't really do. This is more of like a, you know, a large company trying to ensure the stability of their product. Or a small one. <laughs> oh, yeah, 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 sure. <laughs> but, you know, like I'm not chaos engineering my, my, you know, Raspberry Pi to make sure that it keeps doing whatever <laughs> it's supposed to be doing. Right. I, so like... Right. If there's not really, like, a good base, though, for, like, you know, a hobby scenario like that, how do people really get into chaos engineering? Mm. Like, where's the starting point? Well, that's a good question. 
From what I'm seeing, like most people who reach out to me, they're reaching out because they saw a powerful CEO that works on Kubernetes. And I mm-hmm. guess it kind of serves on the wave of uh, popularity of Kubernetes. And, mm-hmm. you know, with Kubernetes, it's kind of easy to deploy things and uh, they come this way. But, you know, if you're not chaos engineering your Raspberry Pi, maybe you should. <laughs> and, uh, there's, uh, I mean, like one of the things, again, you know, with the book is that trying to show is that it really doesn't matter that much what tools you pick and it doesn't matter what stack you are on. Everything that, you know, is written can be bra- broken and uh, there's usually some benefit to see how it breaks. So it's a kind of tough question in terms of, you know, starting mm-hmm. for, for a hobbyist. You know, if you have your small little website, you probably don't necessarily need to break it. And, you know, if it breaks by itself, it's not the end of the world. But you can always hope you get slashed on it. <laughs> <laughs> but so... it's definitely good fun to break these things. And I have to say that, you know, the, the love part of the love and hate relationship with the book is that I get to actually do a lot of these things and, and spend time, you know, preparing examples and breaking things. Mm-hmm. So right. To segue from that, you talked about, you said that uh, it's a lot of fun to do this. Out of all these tools that I'm looking at here on the Chaos Engineering Wiki, like there's Chaos Kong and, and whatnot, mm-hmm. what's your favorite tool to use? Like, obviously, Chaos Kong is probably awesome to use just to watch a region just go bloop, but there's got to be, like, one that you're just like, that's your favorite or whatever. Like you, when you get to run this one, you're like, yeah, you know, like, uh, is there, is there a particular favorite out of the Simeon army set of tools that you, uh, you like to have or like to use? Yeah. So, you know, I could be biased and say that, you know, powerful seal is pretty good. I spend a lot of time with that. Honestly, there's a lot of these tools. Some of them are pretty well maintained. Some of them are a bit less well maintained. I think like, Usually what, what people end up doing the first is that they work on kind of like the VM level. So anything that can talk to your cloud provider, be it AWS, you know, Google Cloud or Azure or whatnot, it's giving you an amazing bang for your back in terms of the amount of time you invest in setting that up, about five to ten minutes. And actually seeing that, you know, all the things that you think are going to happen if you, you know, start taking some kind of VM up and down just resetting or, you know, taking it down for a few minutes, it's going to show you problems already most of the time. And then once you go past that, things get a bit more interesting in terms of, you know, go, going a bit deeper. Uh, so the typically next thing that's interesting is the networking layer. The moment you start introducing latencies into your distributed uh, whatever it is, you know, your database or control plane or whatever it is, uh, small amounts of this slowness are what wrecks havoc. And the tools have been there forever. You know, you have the TC, the traffic control has been sitting there for a long time. These days, there are wrappers around that. So if you're running in Docker, you can use, for example, Pumba, one of the nice ones that makes it a bit easier to use the TC to, to say things like, okay, so for this container, everything that goes out of this container, I want it to be delayed by 500 milliseconds or 50 milliseconds. Interesting. Mm-hmm. And yeah, cool. it usually takes like five minutes. So yeah, there's a wide variety. Uh, there is, uh, I could recommend the awesome uh, chaos engineering list on GitHub. If you type that, it will show up and has a list of tools that is basically as complete as I can think of. Just a warning that some of those tools are better maintained than the others. But yeah, 
Sure. I don't know if that answers your question, really. It does, to an extent. And I have another question. You said that you set these programs to set a latency for 500 milliseconds. Are you aware of change management? And do you guys actually follow change management when you're doing these chaos engineering tests? Or is the chaos engineering part of that aspect of, hey, this is down. Does it work still? Sorry, I don't think I'm familiar with uh, changing. Uh, uh, basically, Ansible, Salt Stack. Oh yeah, conflict management. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, that and and also making like ensuring that the production environment they know, hey, we're going to be doing work on the production environment. You may see systems go down. Like, do you have? Do you subscribe to that sort of method? And mm-hmm. if you do, why? And if you don't, why not? I guess that's what I'm trying to ask. Sorry, what are you trying to do? Did you catch that, Miko? I didn't. Change management basically is, hey, we've got this web server that we need to upgrade. Mm-hmm. We're going to bring it down. Oh, you're talking about like the policy. The policy aspect. of change management. Correct. Okay. Correct. Okay. Change policy. Well, yeah. I mean, it, you can answer the config management as well, too. But I'm curious about, do you follow the change management policy procedures? Or do you use chaos engineering as a, hey, does our change policy work properly? I think I understand what you're asking. Okay. You're asking, like, do you incorporate, like, bad patching as part of the chaos set, right? Hmm. Yeah. And or do you follow the policy? Does, does <laughs> oh, that make yeah, sense? Yeah. Like, do you actually, like, go to the change control meetings and say, yes, we're going to, we're going to fail Oh, we're going to be things, introducing some uh, chaos at this day and this time. Like, do yeah. you actually do that or do you just do it and then they ask, oh, was it, what was this? And you say, oh, it was, it was chaos engineering. Like, is that something you do or... Yes, that's a good question. Thank you. Most of the, yeah, <laughs> now that I, I think I understood that, it took a while. Mm-hmm. Most of the stuff that we're doing, at least in theory, that shouldn't be visible to anyone. So like the experiments that mm-hmm. we, uh, we make, you know, if, you, if I take down, for example, let's say that we're talking about Kubernetes cluster and uh, the Kubernetes mm-hmm. cluster has a control plane. So typically you have three or five nodes that run the control plane and they're supposed to be high availability. So if you take one down, you are not supposed to notice that. Obviously, you know, some corner cases, like, you know, the actual uh, connections that you might be making to the node that's going down and stuff like that. But bottom line is that the system should be engineered in a way that a thing like that is invisible. And so all the monitoring and alerting should be fine-tuned to basically agree on some kind of SLO that let's say that if a node goes down and comes back up within three minutes and it passes all the health checks, there's no really new reason to alert on any of that and everybody's happy. So typically, if we get into the situation where something actually broke, that's because the system doesn't behave you know, the way that we thought it was behaving. And uh, we basically miss some kind of corner case. So, you know, on a normal day, all of the stuff, you know, you can kind of think of it as, you know, some kind of integration test uh, continuously running on a whole system where the kind of failure scenarios that you expect are actually, you know, physically happening. And you can confirm that. And then obviously there are levels higher on that. You know, if you have like actual failure going on, you want to prevent this from getting even worse. There are some safeguards, like for example, you know, typically we only run these experiments during work days when the maximum of people are in the office. Well, when we used to have offices. <laughs> <laughs> right. right. And yeah, so, you know, mo- on a normal day, normal scenario, it's not going to be, you know, a big problem. 
But then, you know, once you reach that level, you can go further and you can, you know, go and introduce uh, bigger failures. And there are people out there, you know, I spoke to, they exist, who <laughs> claim that they uh, tried uh, to, for example, go ahead and not tell the engineering team that they're going to break something. Oh, no. And break something uh, that is supposed to be uh, handled by whatever, you know, recovery procedures that uh, the, the engineering team has in place and see mm-hmm. that, you know, they actually go and manage that properly, that the, the, the actual recovery is also working well. So, you know, once mm. you reach this level of maturity that you can afford doing that, that's pretty impressive. I'm personally not there quite yet, but I'm hoping to get there. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it, it's kind of like the way I think is you basically chaos engineer teams this way and people on top of the, uh, the actual software. So that's pretty cool stuff you can do. Yeah, it sounds like it. yeah for sure. Now, where do you see this? I mean, it, it's still pretty new. You like, especially in tech, it's three or four years for like technology is nothing, but for the hierarchical structure of departments and stuff, three or four years is pretty brand new. Where do you see chaos engineering headed in like the next five, ten years? Mm-hmm. So. I would personally like, you know, the the kind of myth of this is breaking things randomly in production. And we should probably talk about the production bit a bit. Mm-hmm. But kind of randomly breaking things in production to go away and for people to stop seeing this as some kind of weird toy that, you know, some kind of exotic teams in Netflix can afford. Mm-hmm. But hopefully, you know, that's never going to happen to us here. We do serious business here. Mm. I would like to see it, you know, as basically just the next step of all the other testing techniques, you know, from the unit test, integration test, all the way up to chaos engineering of their whole systems. And Mm. I think that, you know, it can provide a pretty good uh, return on investment in terms of, you know, time invested and the amount of value that it can provide. Yeah, no, and and it's, it's hard because it's with most of operations, IT operations, you know, and we've said it on the show before. If you do a good job, you're invisible. Yeah. And you're only visible when you do a bad job. But this seems like a nice way of combating that because now you have metrics saying, you know, we purposefully introduced these faults yeah. and it was so resilient that it passed. You know, right. It continued operating. Yeah, right. So this is a great way of combating that. Yeah. And there's also the kind of human aspect to it that, you know, if you don't have that kind of setup, then you mm-hmm. can quite possibly from the like you know programmer perspective you can go about your life writing this software thinking that you know it might fail writing some unit tests but never actually getting like properly tested the whole thing against these failures and if you know that there is some kind of automated system that's actually going to go and you know tell you off when you didn't handle it properly or you took this one shortcut you know and you just caught the exception did nothing with it right that's not going to fly anymore. So that kind of changes, you know, the entire approach that the teams have. And it kind of goes back into this, you know, the entire SRE mindset and, you know, how everybody's calling themselves SREs these days. (laughs) But yeah, yeah, the human aspect is probably as important or maybe more important than the actual technical implementation there. Interesting. So it intentionally sort of destroys that Schrodinger's failover kind of idea. Yeah, yeah, that's really cool. That's probably the third time someone said that to me. Really? Um, do you? <laughs> that's. Do you have? That, uh, that's a pretty good way of saying it. Do you yeah. have an instance where you invoked 
chaos engineering and the production systems were affected terribly? Or? Oh, probably. That's the whole plan. Sure. It. I was just wondering if he had like an anecdote that he could talk about. A funny story where uh, they unplugged the cable and the entire network went down. And <laughs> Yeah, so, you know, typically, you know, People insert a little a, a, a little uh, story where they didn't need chaos mm-hmm. to do that. I mean, <laughs> oh, boy. <laughs> yeah. oh boy! So you know the the production bit is pretty controversial because mm. it's kind of like you can clearly see arguments on both sides. You know, on, on one sure. hand, the data in production is always slightly different. The environment is always always slightly different, and if you don't test it in the actual production then you never 100% sure that, you know, it's going to work the way that you think it's going to work. Right. But mm-hmm. at the same time, you know, it's kind of, there are use cases where it makes sense to see some kind of failure in production uh, because your users might be a little bit more, you know, understanding of that because you're some kind of cutting edge startup. And there are mm-hmm. occurrences where it's just uh, less acceptable. Let's put it this way. Mm. So usually, you know, there is a spectrum of testing production, right? Uh, Some some Mm. companies, uh, well, some settings are going to allow some kind of AB or, you know, blue-green, some kind of percentage of traffic to, for example, be affected. And then Mm. it might be acceptable. In some other cases, you know, it's a difficult sell. So it really, you know, depends very heavily on where you are and what it means to, to, to actually test in production. So like from my actual experience, the, the production testing has always been a more lightweight version of what we do there in the other environments. And, you know, there is going to be a long way before we can, you know, do stuff exactly the same way. But it mm. is definitely a holy grail. And, you know, it's kind of cool to hear other folks who are doing the exact same testing in production. So, yeah, sorry if that's disappointing, but that's kind of the, the reality. <laughs> no, no, I, I, I imagined that you really couldn't reveal a whole lot. And I just was hoping that you would be like, oh, yeah, there was this one time we walked in and we pulled this cable and uh, the entire <laughs> thing just, just shit the bed and, you know... <laughs> Yeah, I mean, you know, with the with the early days with Kubernetes, you didn't need to trip over a cable to break something. <laughs> <laughs> there was a big learning curve, and I bet, I bet. But these days, you know, we're a little bit more more mature with that, and fortunately, it's not happening a whole lot uh, of time. But you know, I did break uh, Dev this morning. Yeah, well, powerful seal did so. That, mm. that keeps happening all the time. <laughs> yeah, but that is right. made to be broken. I mean, really, yeah, come on. Well, it's, it's, <laughs> it's the point of it, yeah. yeah. Yeah, definitely. Cool, very cool. Does anyone have any further questions for Miko while we have them? Jathan? I think that was a pretty pretty good discussion. Okay. <laughs> Payton, any closing? I've got nothing. I, I really uh, I do appreciate him coming on and, and talking to us. Yeah. Miko, is there anything yeah, we... that you want to cover that we didn't get to? Mm-hmm. Well, you know, first of all, I was pleasure. That's pretty casual of a format. I'm, I'm, I'm enjoying that myself. I've never had Merlo with my yeah. with my podcast before. Glad to hear it. You know, if I can ask anything, the, the early access is kind of cool because you can actually go and tell me off uh, before it gets printed. So, you know, if you see some uh, outrageous claims there, <laughs> derase that now. It's better, uh, you know, to do it, fix it now than later in the writers. Of course, yeah. It's harder to get that second <laughs> version out for sure. Yeah. yeah. So yeah, thanks for that. That's really cool. Yeah. 
It's a pleasure. So I think with that, we'll move into into our next segment. Jason, if you have 20 containers in a Kubernetes cluster, uh-huh. and your chaos monkey, the thresholds aren't set correctly, uh-huh. and it wipes out five of them. Yeah. How many are 23 you million. with? 23 million. That's not <laughs> 15 not containers. There you go. Hey, now, right no, no, if those containers were clams, <laughs> how many clams would that be? 15 <laughs> clams. Okay. 32. Okay. Why don't you give us your 15 clams? Formico's like, what the hell are they doing? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, his segment's called 15 clams, so I make him do a little bit of math before each time. Yeah, so I have been thinking a lot about the concept of slotted installs. Slotted in you mean like blade servers? No, no, no. I mean like like Gentoo style slots. Oh, oh, like multiple versions of the same library. Yes. Okay. And I'm curious how it's really hard to achieve that actually sometimes on certain types yes. of systems and distros and stuff. So I'm curious what workarounds you all have employed to do that. So for me, you know, on the compute cluster and stuff, we have to have lots of different versions of software to match publications and all kinds of stuff. So mm-hmm. I just end up compiling everything by hand and putting it in opt. I mean, not really by hand anymore. Like, I've scripted it out and, and stuff. Yeah, but it's still quote-unquote by hand. But yeah. what is, like, the proper way to do that for other people who maybe need it on a lesser scale? Like, let's say you're writing a project with... You're going to hate me for saying this, but let's say, you know, pretend you're writing a project with Golang. Here we go. <laughs> okay. You're using version 1.14, but 1.15 comes out. You want to keep writing in 1.14 while simultaneously testing all the functionality as you write it in 1.15. So, because 1.14 is the last version that's going to be available on a certain version of Mac OS, for example, or something. So, no, I mean, number one, you're going to want multiple branches for that in your source code. Sure. I mean, that's, that's For your you know, code... That's, that's a given. But right? I mean, I'm talking about the actual management of Testing several versions of software and, on yeah, your yeah, computer. Yeah. I would probably do it with VMs, honestly. Really? So you yeah. wouldn't even try to keep them on a single host? Not unless it was specifically designed for it like Gentoo was. Because, I mean, I feel like slotting libraries is... Messy? Messy, yeah. But the distro has to be like designed for it from ground up to support it. And Gentoo is. And other distros kind of sort of hack it, you know? but it's generally more of a pain in the ass than it warrants. So you can ask yourself, like, do I want to mess around with pathing and, you know, LD preload this different path? Mm -hmm. Or do I just want to set up a a totally different VM and have that build it? That could be a lot of VMs, though. It can be, but you don't need to keep all of them running at the same time. Right. And if they're you're if you want to pin it to a certain version, you technically don't really need to update. God, this is where Miko's going to tell us to use containers. I was just waiting for that, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So why why don't you use containers? (laughs) Well, I I personally have a personal vendetta and crusade against containers just as... as What date containers do to you? Yeah, that's the question. He doesn't have anything good to say here. He'll just blow smoke up your ass, man. No, it's not. It's not blow. Like, they're valid concerns, but they're not concerns for everyone. They're just concerns for me and maybe like a few other people. So I guess that's an interesting question for the chaos engineer is, do you feel like containers are really secure? (laughs) <laughs> I don't like that laugh. Nah, that's not that's not why containers are there, right? <laughs> mm. So you just trash them and rebuild, yeah. No, I mean, I, I mean, you know, the, uh, a Linux container is probably going to be a pretty good solution for your problem here. 
you know, in terms of the actual cost that you run in the overhead of running will be slim. If you do your homework well and you structure the layers nicely, uh, you're going to reuse a lot of the files. So that yeah, can work. And, you know, a lot mm. of people are doing that right now. And to be fair, yeah, like I, I'm not 100% against containers for no, for any reason. Mm-hmm. Just you know, I, I think they're a great, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, they're great tools for developers. And even I think for building, it is a good use case for them. Yeah. So I, I could definitely, I'm willing to compromise on that. So I can't see it like that. I just personally from the, I guess from the design of how I approach things, like it's all pixie driven, kickstart driven, things like that. So a VM is going to be easier to turn up than designing a new container spec. So that's my approach for it. But yeah, I mean, I think containers are perfectly valid for this use case. If, if your end goal is to build something rather than deploy, I mean, I'm yeah, totally okay with that. There are interesting projects kind of like on the verge of the two, the micro VMs kind of thing. You know, you had the firecracker, mm-hmm. you had the, what are they called, kata containers. There's, I can think of at least a handful of projects that try to sure. give you, you know, the security of a VM. At the same time, don't take seven minutes to boot. You're right. <laughs> exactly. exactly. And there's also, no, what was I going to say? No, just use containers, you know. <laughs> <laughs> you know, oh, I, I was going to say unikernels, you know. That's yeah. like an ultimate micro VM. Mm-hmm. I was going to say, we could just bypass all of that and go even simpler. This is a pretty good use case for CH roots. Right. Could be. Because you yeah, because you really only need that specific version of library. Yeah, but you lose functionality in terms of like running as a non root user, for example, in a CH root. No, you can run as a non root user in the CH root. Easily? Really? Yeah. Yeah, you just add the user to the CH root. So wait, I I'm a bit confused here. So you don't like a container, but you like yeah. <laughs> CH root that is Depending a container minus uh, capabilities. And minus right. namespaces and minus second. Right. Well, you can do namespaces with systemd ch roots. It's actually, it, it uses them by default, but. <laughs> and c groups. Yeah. yeah, like, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. But like, I think this, what JThon is presenting, I think would be a good use case for ch roots. And granted, containers have mostly taken their place because we're looking for like things running in ch roots. We're not looking for like a single task minded throwaway environment and ch roots are pretty good for that mm-hmm. and they've fallen out of vogue but like there's no reason for them to they i think they still have use cases yeah no i wouldn't trust the security of a ch root for deployment just like i personally don't really trust the security of containers for deployment but for building software where you would need potentially con- you know libraries that potentially conflict with the system libraries yeah i, I think that's a pretty good pretty good use Hmm. But yeah, you know, it all the problem though yeah. is even in, in a container or a CH root, it's very hard sometimes to get old versions of packages, depending. Mm. I mean, we have yeah. like the CentOS archives or whatever the hell they call it now. Sure. And obviously, but then you run into dependency issues if you right. ever do I mean, a Yelp update. It can yeah. be pretty difficult to actually test what you might want to test. So I was thinking like more of a manual process, which obviously in a container, you could just as well compile whatever the hell you wanted or in a CH root. You know, a, a good compromise, I guess, on that would be, so the, in CentOS, for instance, CentOS slash rel, whatever, as an example, they do in their archives keep, or I think the, the vault, they call it. Now you have to go to usually third-party mirrors to get them, but you can't get ISOs 
right. of specific releases. Yeah. What I would do is maybe mount that ISO, mount the Squash FS inside it, and then boom. You can either copy it over to a, a local CH root or, I guess, bootstrap it into a container. Does I don't really care how you do it, but that would be a good point of reference for that. Mm-hmm. Because it would, it would then be a self-contained system. You don't need to worry about updating it because it's built from a static copy, you know, every time. Right. From It's an ISO. It shouldn't be changing. So I think that would be a good way of doing that as long as you remember to just recreate that build environment every time. Right. Rather than trying to keep it up to date or anything like that. Mm-hmm. All right. What about like flat packs? Has anybody used those? No. I feel like that. I don't know if that really. I mean, I haven't either. I uh, genuinely. The idea of it kind of sketches me out, so I... Yeah, no. I've used water, too. And, like, I agree. Like, the philosophy... Are you familiar with flat packs, Miko? I don't want to feel like you're left out of this. No, I've never actually used them. Okay, but you know what they are? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay, so I get the point of them. It's, you know, you want to distribute static versions of libraries that your particular application needs. But I feel like that's pretty bad practice. Because at, the, at that point, you're not trying to accommodate for different releases in your production, which ideally you shouldn't have, right? Cattle, not pets. Hmm. But if you don't really have much of a choice, I don't know if flat packs are the way to go because they're supposed to ease distribution, but not necessarily... I guess what I'm trying to say is I see too much potential for abuse with them in terms of encouraging a lack of keeping your program up to date. Yeah, right. And using newer libraries. So I don't know. They would work, That's you know, don't of, get me wrong. Yeah, but, yeah, okay. But then you're kind of shoehorned yourself into always using this old version rather than forcing yourself to adapt your software that you're writing to newer releases of the libraries you're using. Yeah, or just using different libraries in some cases. <laughs> or just using different libraries, right, exactly. So. All right, well, yeah. that, that was kind of my question. My 15 clams... You know, the only reason I ask is because the Go scenario presented is something that recently actually came up in my day-to-day. Not for me, but I started writing something in Go that is for... Well, I can't really talk about what it's for, to be honest, so sorry, but... (laughs) Okay, you talk about what version it's for. Yeah, but the version of Go that we were using is going to stop... It's like the last one that will be supported on their version, like one of my coworkers or somebody I'm working with. Mm. It's the last version of Go... That will be available for their version of Mac OS. But of course, I went ahead and updated to one past that because I always just, you know, I run Arch. It's rolling release. I always have the newest one. And there mm. were some things that I kind of had to change that now no longer work on their machine. And so what I was curious is like, what's the best way for me to maintain two versions of that? Obviously, you know, I can compile Go and install it anywhere I want in my path. And I'm competent and able to do that. But at what point is that going to become a burden? How do I further resolve this? How do other people on the team manage it? And how do most people manage it if anybody's doing this in the first place? Which it sounds. Why is Go stopping? It's support? not the newest Mac OS, it's an older one. Why don't they just update the Mac OS? I have no idea, man. <laughs> I mean, really, that's the root of the problem here, let's face it. But yeah, patch your shit, dude. But so he's, he's also. I mean, I do think that at some point Apple cuts off Mac OS updates depending on the age of your hardware. They do. Yeah, but it's pretty drastic. They're really trying to push the newer releases. So Of course they are. And they're also trying to push you to newer hardware, too. I mean, to be fair, at least the newer releases are free now. They're free upgrades. Yeah, true. Yeah, I remember my first Mac, I had to pay for my first two upgrades. Yeah, that's, that's ridiculous. 
<laughs> but, you know, more to the point, I guess what I'm asking is he's also developing this software with you? Yes, he doesn't just have to run it. He's also developing. Okay, okay so that's it. I mean, honestly, I think he should just move all of his development to like a VM or dual boot at that point. Yeah. Or ideally just update his fucking Mac OS. Well, to be but... fair, on the latest Mac OS, we can't even pull, uh, <laughs> we can't even use curl without getting an SSL. <laughs> oh, yeah, right. So, there's that. Wow. Way to go, Mac OS. Good job, yeah. Apple. Yeah. Well, hopefully that's a we're, bug that they're So, Mika, there was a large external. CA that Sectigo or Komodo used for the last like several years. It was and hard coded? No, but lots of certificates were duly signed by that and their newer CA. Mm-hmm. For whatever reason, Apple has not updated the central CA store in macOS to use the new one. They're still pointing to the old one, and now, of course, the old one has expired. So I guess, <laughs> yeah. So it's not hard coded in software anywhere, it's just an OS problem that they just never observe this well, to become a... hard-coded in the system trust store. Yeah, I mean, I guess there's that. <laughs> but yeah. But yeah, so yeah. ever since then, I have a couple of certificates on some sites that I run for work that like, and it's interesting because, you know, like I can go to my GitLab server via the web and that's fine. But if I try to do an HTTP pool, <laughs> I just get an error. Can you, what are you using to back those repositories? What do you mean? What software? GitLab, GitLab. It's GitLab. Do they let you do clone from a Git URL instead of an HTTP? Yeah, they do. And I always do. So I didn't even know this was a problem until some users pointed it out. But apparently a, yeah. a fair number of people in our environment actually use HTTPS pooling and they, you know, use their username and password. So, so like, that's weird. I mean, the benefit there is, you know, anyone listening on the wire won't be able to tell which repo they're pulling. But it's, number one, it, I mean, it's way slower. And number two, it's a read operation. You can... Usually with none they're on a vpn aren't they i mean yeah in most cases but not always oh because i was gonna say if they're pulling over the vpn it doesn't even matter which protocol and i would just have them use a git pool rather than a http pool yeah i don't know it's a weird thing because i actually you know i had thought this was unique to us and i was like well maybe i'll just get a new cert even though it doesn't expire for another year (laughs) no but i actually tried to pull a repo the other day from another third-party git server and i got the same error Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's one thing when it's my own and I could actually verify the cert by hand if I wanted, but it's somebody else's. I don't fucking know where that's coming from. Yeah, right. That's weird. I mean, yeah. So uh, I don't know. I don't understand. Maybe Apple hasn't noticed. <laughs> how, <laughs> I how do I call them up and bit. just like, hey, guys. Hey, remember how you wanted me to work for you as, a, as an SRE? Yeah, uh, this would have never happened if what? I was working for uh, Apple. If, if you actually <laughs> hired me, you might have. You know. <laughs> oh, gosh. Good times. Good times, good times. Cool. Well, I. Well, now that we've recapped yet another Apple failure, I think that is a good time to end this episode. Absolutely. This has been System Industrivia. I'm Brent. I'm Jonathan. And I'm Peyton. And with us, we had. Miko. Pleasure. It was our pleasure. Yeah, it was yeah, a lot of fun. Thank, thank you for coming you. on. Thank you very much. Yeah, it was really Thanks, a, a Thanks good discussion. Me. I'm going to go chaos engineer my Raspberry Pi when we're done. <laughs> yeah, you better. <laughs> yeah, put your money for your mouth, Jayla. You got to do it now. Run Prime. You don't get to hold you to that, right? Run test on it till it does. Well, I'll just <laughs> try to install FreeBSD and I'll consider it chaos. <laughs> okay. So you're, we can expect your book, the you know final uh, version being released, what, early 2021, I see? Yeah, so I'm supposed to hand it in in before September and takes a while for them to actually print it. Sure. But yeah, 
check that out. Okay, cool. So keep an eye out for that. Once again, you know, I'll, I'll link to the book in the show notes. So you can check it out for yourself. Looks like a pretty good read. And yeah, it's been a pleasure, Miko. Thank you so much. Oh, thank you. Indeed. Yeah. All right. See you around.